We live in a broken world, and we are broken people. Where can we find healing? Nehemiah faced unimaginable challenges and opposition, and yet through perseverance and faith, he accomplished great things for God. Like Nehemiah, the difficulties we encounter may seem impossible to overcome, but God gives us the grace to accomplish what he calls us to do. Exercising our faith in God is the beginning of the path to redemption. Well, good morning, everyone. So glad you're here today. Uh, We've been in the book of Nehemiah and working our way through. And uh, we're getting to a really pivotal and very important point in the story, as you'll see here in a little bit. But uh, where we left off last week was... This city wall around Jerusalem was rebuilt from ruins. And they completed that task like in a breathtaking 52 days. Think about that. It's extraordinary. And when their enemies heard about this accomplishment, it says all the surrounding nations were intimidated. And they lost their confidence. Because they realized that the only way that such an extraordinary thing could be done was if it had been accomplished by God himself. I like to call that the boomerang effect. When the nations are trying to intimidate, when the nations are trying to dissuade people from faith and trusting God, uh, when the nations seem so confident and cocky and, and all these things, but then in the end, they've lost their confidence, they're the ones intimidated, that's the boomerang effect. And uh, God wants to do the boomerang effect in your life, in your family, in this church, in this world. The Bible is full of examples where there's kind of this boomerang effect. And so uh, just keep that in mind, uh, that you know God turns everything upside down in his time. Anyhow, in, in Nehemiah 7, the doors of the gates are installed. Remember the wall was built, but the, the, the gates hadn't been installed yet? Well, they install the gates, and they appoint gatekeepers. And the Levites who were charged with ministering in the temple, they're appointed to do different roles. And so they're trying to reestablish the rhythm of worship and and everything there in the city. Singers are appointed. Leaders who are known to fear God and who had demonstrated faithfulness in their lives were installed at key roles in Jerusalem. They securely shut the doors. They fastened the gates. They posted guards all night long, well into the morning, They didn't open the gates until the afternoon when the sun reached its peak. They didn't open those gates first thing in the morning. They didn't leave them open at night. They were very careful about exposing the city to danger. So uh, even the citizens, the ordinary citizen was charged with security, with guarding the city. Uh, You know, I think this is a, a lesson for us as the people of God, that we don't live this life alone that we need each other's eyes and ears and each other's strength and help, uh, that we watch out for each other, that that we're in this thing together. And that's the the kind of mindset that the builders had in the city of Jerusalem as this wall was was built. Now, Nehemiah 7.4 says something interesting. I want to use this as a springboard for us this morning. The city was large and spacious, but... There were few people in it, and no homes had been built yet. So they did this extraordinary effort. 
They have all this space and all this capacity, but the city was empty. The people weren't there yet, and houses hadn't been rebuilt. When I read these words, I remember I was thinking back to the day uh, Rick Schramm called me on behalf of the elders of Lakeside. This is back in 2000, uh, actually at the end of 1999, but anyway, I remember when he called and the church invited me to become the next preacher at Lakeside. And at the time, Lakeside had sold its old building that it had been in for uh, 30 or 40 years. They moved into the old Charlie Sattler building on Stevenson Drive. The church has now been demolished, but the church was literally worshiping in the old showroom of Charlie Sattler. And it had these tall glass windows, and so everybody kind of tongue-in-cheek called it the Crystal Cathedral. That we'd moved into the Crystal Cathedral, and the newspaper came out and did a funny story and everything. We were holding Bible studies, Sunday school classes in the service bay where they used to change oil. And there's a little sign on the service bay that read, service starts here. But we uh, gave it a whole new meaning by uh, holding uh, classes in there and everything. And while all that was happening, the church was wrapping up construction here at our current location on Toronto Road. And what drew me to Lakeside was this congregation's bold faith. At the time, we had about 135 140 people that were regularly attending the church during that transition. And this group of people had left everything that was comfortable and familiar. The old building, think about all the memories, all the times of worship and growth together and weddings and funerals and memories. And you can really develop an attachment to a place. And and this group of folks were willing to jettison that and risk everything and literally invest millions of dollars to build for the future. I mean, a group of 135, 150 people investing millions, I mean, the elders didn't have to beg me to come. I was like, sign me up, you know, that kind of faith. I wanted to be around those kinds of of leaders. And I remember that first year, though, when the church was like a million dollars, almost a million dollars in debt. And we'd have these conversations with uh, Dave Humke and Pam McClellan, who've always kind of helped with our finances, and... Some weeks were very tight, and some months were very tight. But when you look back on it, at the time, it was like, wow. But if you look back on it, and God provided. He totally provided. There was never a week, there was never a month where we weren't able to meet our responsibilities. And, uh, and this was even cooler. A, a church of just a few hundred, in a very short time, decimated a millions of, millions of dollars, into, a million dollars, into, like in record time, Everybody's expectations were surpassed. And so right now, you know, our mortgage at our church is 280000 or something. But I, in the context of that history, you know, 280000 our church is like three times larger now. So it's like, okay, uh, we still trust God, but God's demonstrated that he's got us when we step out on faith. But I remember being filled with that Nehemiah 616 kind of vibe where you have this awareness, this acute awareness, that a task has been accomplished by God. It's the only explanation for it, that God was in on something because of the way in which it happened and the way in which it surpassed everybody's expectations. And so uh, I remember when uh, that first core group of people entered into this facility. Now, we've remodeled and we've added another wing, but even back then, 
It felt so large and spacious to walk into this building. We were writing scripture verses on the floor and praying and, and dedicating the building and, and, and asking God to be at work and, and uh, you know, use this as an instrument, this, this facility. Uh, I'm, it may surprise you to know this, but uh, 150 people is actually considered a very large church by worldwide standards. But in Springfield, we have many churches that are over 150. But that's a lot of people. But this facility was built to bring in hundreds and hundreds more. We built way beyond what our congregation's actual need was in faith. And it wasn't long before I realized that just because we had this new big building and it was spacious and and that just because we had this tool didn't mean we had a church. And, And that's what we see in the story of Nehemiah too is just because Nehemiah had built a wall And just because they'd stationed leaders and ministers and guards and worship leaders, singers, didn't mean they had a city yet. You only have a church, you only have a city when you begin building the people. And sometimes we get those things confused and we forget that building a building, just because you've done something extraordinary like that, doesn't mean you've accomplished the mission of God yet. You may have an opportunity to do it, but you haven't accomplished, you haven't arrived by any means. So a lot of times when we read the story of Nehemiah, once the wall's built and once everybody's appointed and it looks like everything's great, we check out, you know, at chapter 7. But there's other things that start to happen. And the pivotal thing that starts to happen is this shift in focus from building the building to building the people. And I would submit to you that we need to make that pivot now more than ever. Again, Nehemiah 7.4. The city was large and spacious, but there were few people in it, and no homes had been built yet. Do you know the American church? And I know some of you don't have context to this. You may be hearing this. You may uh, be hearing it for the first time. You may not have this perspective. But the American church as a whole has mastered building buildings. Do you know that? We've mastered it. In fact, I think we can build buildings without even relying on God very much. I mean, I hate to say that, but that's the truth. If I wanted, I could place a phone call this week, and within, uh, I, I could effortlessly secure millions of dollars in financing for our church, and within a year, we could build any size building that we could dream of. That's how easy that would be. Billions of dollars. Literally, I'm not making this up, billions of dollars have been set aside and made available exclusively to churches for the purpose of building. That money will be loaned if you have any kind of an ambition or dream. The money's there. Money exclusively for building, not for doing ministries, feeding the homeless, all these other kinds of things, but if you want to build a building, they got you covered. There's organizations that are completely focused on building buildings. Uh, We refer to them as church pharma. You know, just like there's big pharma, they do all, you know, church pharma, there's all these institutional entities, these corporations that are vested in churches being in debt so that, hey, you know, they're, they're helping you do your dream, but you're also uh, accomplishing their financial goals as well. So organization, they, they have so much idle cash, they're virtually begging to loan the money. Uh, and they're afraid that if they don't loan money and if your church doesn't do all this, that They won't be able to pay interest to those that are vested in CDs and savings accounts and stuff. But the money's there. And church architectural firms, 
lying up at the door, at the slightest rumor that you, you're growing, you're expanding, you might want to build, they line up at the door, your phone rings off the hook. And so churches in America have mastered building. In fact, our American churches have mastered other things as well. We've mastered branding personalities. You know, uh, how many churches are built around a personality, a dynamic person, a leader like a Nehemiah, for example? You know, and, and this person is the sage or the leader or the, the catalytic person, and, and everybody's looking to this personality, right? Churches have mastered building programs. Uh, churches know the exact programs that they can offer and what they can do in order to attract this demographic or that demographic or achieve this goal or that goal or whatever it is. We've mastered uh, networking. You know, like a lot of people, you go to a church and your decision to go to a church is based on the people themselves. You look at a group of people and you say, you know, is this a, a, a group that I want to run with? Is this a group that can, can elevate me? Is this a group that can serve me? Is this a group that can accomplish my goals? You don't go to a church and say, hey, uh, there's a real need here. I, I can serve here. We usually look in through the lens of, can this church serve me? Can these people serve me? We've mastered the place, the building. And uh, there are some other things that we've not mastered so well. And so in Nehemiah 7, there's this pivot from building buildings, building walls, building to building people. Within six months after we moved into this building, by the way, I was a young leader. I was a, I'd been in ministry uh, for four or five years preaching. But, but I realized that just because you have a building doesn't mean you have a church. Just because you build a great wall with beautiful timber gates and big doors to welcome all the people. And just because you do that doesn't mean you have a city. From the July when we held our first service at Lakeside to the end of that year, that December, those first six months, uh, it was kind of rudimentary. Didn't have a database, couldn't afford a database. We were paying uh, for the building. But I maintained an Excel spreadsheet. And anytime somebody would give a name or introduce themselves or fill out the guest log or whatever it was, I'd add their name to this spreadsheet. And within six months, I had a 1,000 names of people, families that visited Lakeside. And those are just the people that told us their name. Every week, I, you know, it, you couldn't keep track of it all. There were so many people that siphoned through our church. It was so exciting on one level for the, that, that group, that 135, that 150 people were in this building, and all these people are showing up. And, and we're like, man, we're going to blow up. We're going to grow and all. Do you realize after six months, after 1,000, 2,000, however many, what do you think our average attendance was in that January? It wasn't much different. <laughs> it wasn't much different. I realized that we'd build a building, but we weren't ready for the people to show up. And that's the danger. Uh, you can build a city with all the features and everything you have, but you may not be ready for the people to show up. Now, we had great leaders. We had singers, worship people. We had volunteers. We had church services. We had Sunday school classes. But we didn't have a plan for how to help people rebuild their lives. We didn't have a plan for how to help people, families, rebuild their homes. We didn't have a plan for teaching the church to build itself up in love, everybody discovering their gift, everybody using their gift, everybody getting plugged in. Each part doing its work. We didn't have a plan for evangelism, for assimilation. You know, we had all the, 
people at the top of the funnel, so to speak, but they didn't find much traction beneath the top of the funnel. We didn't have a plan for multiplying disciple makers. We didn't have a plan for raising up leaders, building and sustaining group life, healing marriages, healing families, building stronger homes, binding up the broken. So many needs, so many things surfaced within the life of the congregation, and we were scrambling. How do we help so-and-so? How do we do that? What do we do about that? We didn't have a plan for how to love our city deeply and profoundly. I think God maybe has a strange sense of humor sometimes. He says, oh, so you built it, and you want people to come, huh? Well, I'll send you a 1,000 people. Let's see how you do. We'll send you a 1,000. I think sometimes God calls our bluff a little bit, and he says to us, so what are you going to do with them? If I send you a 1,000, what are you going to do with them? What kind of disciples are you going to make them into? And God might sit back and maybe uh, humble us. And, and I don't think he takes enjoyment in it, but he, he humbles us sometimes, doesn't he? After stepping out on faith, spending millions, after building big, we weren't much different size fellowship than when we'd first begun. Because one of the hardest things is for God's people to pivot from building buildings to forming godly people and godly families for God's own glory. Uh, I have to make a confession. It's infinitely easier to build buildings and programs than it is to build people. It's a lot easier to appoint singers and run worship services than, you know, it's easy to build pretty gates with great big doors to welcome all the people. It's easier to have business meetings, talking about finances and building issues. It is really, really hard. It is very hard to build people and build families. At the end of Nehemiah 7, uh, maybe this is an aside, but at the end of Nehemiah 7 in verse 70, the governor gives a 1,000 gold coins to the treasury. Pretty impressive gift. Not small, not insignificant at all. He gives uh, a 1,000 gold coins. And then after him, uh, in verse 71 of Nehemiah 7, there's some key families that get together and they give 20,000 gold coins and 2,200 silver coins for the project. Pretty impressive. In verse 72 of chapter 7, we're told that all the rest of the, all the people gave 20,000 gold coins and 2,000 silver coins. You know, when I read that, uh, just to kind of amplify a point here, is that Generosity, there's a science to generosity that people have figured out through the ages. And there's a science to generosity. What I mean is that there's principles of generosity that show up in Scripture that are still true today. For example, have you ever heard of stewardship campaigns? I'm not announcing a stewardship campaign today, so just be at ease, okay? I didn't use the book of Nehemiah to announce some building program, did I? Uh, so trust me, you know, we, I got your back here. But anyway. But here's how these campaigns work, and we've done them here at Lakeside. We wouldn't be here had we not done some of them, maybe. First of all, there's a lead person who makes a lead gift. Usually, it's one of the wealthiest people in a congregation or church, a one percenter that gives more than 2,000 gold coins. That is a substantial individual gift. Like a whole bunch of people might be able to come with that amount, but 
One person sets the tone, they give big, that's the governor in this story. But then after that lead gift, there's usually like 10 to 15% of the congregation, the key leaders, the key families, the people that have been rooted there, that group will usually get together and they will make a gift. Okay, in this case, they give a gift of 20,000 gold coins. And so what's interesting is all the other gifts that you'll get in a campaign, the, the rest of the 85% or 90% of gifts uh, from all the other people usually will match but not typically exceed what those key families, that, that 10 to 15% of people did alone. Isn't that interesting? So it's like a science. And churches have mastered not just building buildings but also funding projects in this way. And so in Nehemiah 8, the really hard stuff begins. And that is the people show up. And what do you do when people show up and they want to sense the presence and power of God in their world? I want to read Nehemiah 8 uh, verses 1 through 6 to you. All the people gathered together at the square in front of the water gate. They asked the scribe Ezra, which is interesting to me. They're taking the initiative. They want something. They asked the scribe Ezra to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had given Israel, to bring it out. And on the first day of the seventh month, the priest Ezra, he's a priest and scribe. Uh, scribe means that he uh, studied, he, he uh, translated, he made copies of the scripture, and he was a priest. So he ministered what the scriptures taught. And, uh, but he brought the law before the assembly of men, women, and everyone who could listen with understanding. That's kind of a principle that we use at Lakeside too, is men, women, everyone capable of understanding. We try to do a group teaching. Uh, so while he was facing the square in front of the water gate, he read out of it from daybreak until noon before the men, women, and those who could understand. All the people listened attentively to the book of the law. The scribe Ezra stood on a high wooden platform made for this very purpose. And uh, he had... Mathathiah, Shema, Ananiah, these men, you notice they stood beside him on his right. And to his left were another group of men. And it says, Ezra opened the book in full view of all the people since he was elevated above all the people. Now let me just pause here for a moment. This isn't a cult of personality that we read here in this chapter. Ezra, Nehemiah, but they had a collection of people. It was a team effort. It wasn't a solo individual that was bringing about the reformations that were needed in the community of God. It was a team effort. And Ezra opened the book. You know, was, it, was that a prop? Was the platform a prop? Was the book a prop? You know, I have this in front of me every time I preach because I'm preaching out of it. It's not just a prop. We're actually using it. Imagine that. But Ezra stood, and he opened this book in front of everyone in full view. Now, I think even that is significant because he's modeling something that's going to prove transformative to the people of God. He opens the word. You know, when you pull out your phone, and uh, you may have the Bible app on there, but you pull out your phone, and people probably think you're playing solitaire unless they go and verify and confirm it. You pull out your Bible, you know, I don't think you're playing solitaire in your Bible. You might be drawing pictures in your Bibles. I don't know. But, 
But if you have the word and they see the word and you open the word, there's a pretty good chance that you're a person of the word, right? You pull out your phone and think, yeah, you might be on TikTok for the you know, next hour or whatever. So uh, he opens it, he stood in front of everybody. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and everyone raised their hands and they said, amen, amen, which means truly, truly. And they knelt low and they worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. I want to mention at this point the single greatest key to spiritual renewal. You want spiritual renewal, right? How many of you would like to see spiritual renewal in our nation? You know, two of us, three of us, four. Now we've got five. Okay, they're pop, that's like popcorn. Sometimes it starts slow, but everybody starts popping. All right. How many want to see spiritual renewal in our city? In our church? What about in your family? How about your marriage? How about your life? The greatest key and predictor of spiritual renewal is reading, understanding, and revering God's word. Reading, understanding, but also revering the word of God. That's what we see in these verses. The single greatest indicator of spiritual stagnation is neglecting, abandoning, dishonoring God's word. The word is what Jesus said in his prayer, would sanctify his church. The word would sanctify our lives, sanctify our marriages, sanctify our city, our block, our neighborhood, our nation, the ends of the earth. The word would be the transformative dynamic that if embraced and revered, would be effective and accomplish its purpose. You know, in 1 Peter, uh, the Apostle Peter says this about the Bible. 1 Peter one twenty three. He declares that what gives us spiritual birth, what gives us birth, if it gives us birth, it can give us renewal, right, is the living, enduring word of God. We purify ourselves. We love one another, grow in loving one another with pure, sincere hearts. Why? Peter says... It's because you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of an imperishable seed, not because of a big personality on a stage, not because of some program, not because of how winsome and attractive the people of God may be, not because of the place or the building you're in, but what brings about revitalization and renewal is the living, enduring word of God. You leave that ingredient out then there's no renewal, no reading, no understanding, no revering, no new birth, no revitalization. I spent the last couple of weeks, a part of the last couple of weeks, uh, I went to two different conferences. I don't know why they schedule everything in October, but that's what happens. So the week before, uh, I was in a gathering of leaders, and there's people from all over the world, which is really cool. And I love that about Chicago, that it's a very diverse place, and people are there from all over the place. So you get kind of a picture, I do of, like, how's the kingdom of God doing globally? And, and, and what's happening? And then last week, uh, or, you know, I, I, I uh, went and it was basically people from churches all over the United States and also from the world too, but it was people who are effectively reaching other people. And it was an evangelism conference and everybody there, like, they had that value and, and speakers were talking about it, and people were giving their testimonies. And, you know, just from the last couple of weeks, I'll tell you, I've never been more encouraged and hopeful about God's kingdom than I am right now today. There is 
tremendous things happening. But as I sat there and listened, what is the secret ingredient to reaching the lost? What's the secret ingredient to making people into mature disciples of Christ? How are disciple makers being unleashed? Disciple making churches, pastors, leaders, even disciple making parents. What is the dynamic that's being unleashed that's accomplishing such great fruit and things? I heard the same thing a hundred times. And I heard it so many times, you know, I was like, okay, there it is, there it is again, there it is again, there it is again. You know, I, I just, unmistakable message. One guy said, I read the Bible with my wife and the word sanctifier. A woman would say, I read the Bible with my husband and it sanctified him. A parents talked about, we read the Bible as a family with our kids. We didn't just read it. We helped them understand it. We didn't just help them understand it. We helped them respect and revere and value it. Uh, one guy said, I started reading the Bible with a neighbor during COVID. And this guy's from Australia, so everybody was on complete lockdown. But the one place you could go in Australia if you wanted to bump into somebody was you could go to the bar to drink alcohol. And so they'd go to the bar, they'd order a beer, and one would sit over here and one would sit over here six foot apart, and they would read the Bible together. And that's how this guy uh, led his neighbor to Christ. He said, let's read the Bible together. And the guy said, okay. Coworkers, friends, neighbors, all these things. And the thing that really stood out to me is they didn't invite people to come meet some personality. They didn't invite people to some program. They didn't invite people to some place like a church building. They didn't invite people to say, hey, you know, uh, come to this social event and, and enjoy everybody and blah, blah, blah. You know, it was, they invited them to the word first. That was the agenda, to invite people right into the word. With this confidence, with this confidence, the word regenerates. The word gives birth. The word renews. You can say amen in this church if you want to like amplify that you agree, but the word does the work. Hebrews 4.12, the word of God is living. It is effective. We all want to do things that are effective. It's sharper than any double-edged sword. It can penetrate as far as a separation of a soul and spirit, uh, joints and marrow. It's able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart, you know, you want to do laser surgery. I mean, something better than lasers is what God does with his word. I mean, he goes right down to the core of us. And he exposes who we are and what we are. And, and, and God offers us his grace and redemption. And, and he, he sanctifies the most corrupted among us. It's powerful. The word is effective. Nehemiah 8.6 uh, Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and with their hands uplifted all the people said, amen, amen. You can say it if you want. Then they knelt low and they worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Now that's how you know a person has got the value of reverence is when the word actually translates and there's an effect and a person's faces to the ground because they realize how great and holy God is, right? And also merciful and gracious. Verse 7, Nehemiah 8. This is really cool. The Levites explained the law to the people 
as they stood in their places. They read out of the book of the law of God, translating and giving the meaning so that the people could understand what was read. You know, you can quote scripture at people, but really what we need to do is we need to give people the context and give them some perspective and help them understand some of the history of the Bible. It it doesn't take much context for your scripture reading to go to a whole other exponential level. I mean, just to understand there's an Old Testament, there's a New Testament, there's different types of literature, there's from different types of parts of history. You know, we do an intro to the Bible class here at the church and people that go through it, it just completely unlocks a whole other level of understanding of scripture. But you have to do more than just read it. You have to learn to explain it and help people understand. So anyway, Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest, who's also a scribe, the Levites who were instructing the people said to all of them, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep because all the peoples were uh, weeping as they heard the words of the law. Uh, Then he said to them, go and eat what is rich, drink what is sweet, and send portions to those who have nothing prepared because today is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve because the joy of the Lord is your strength. Let me just say, when we hold out the word to people, it's not to bring them to eternal sin and to eternal guilt and to eternal shame and to beat them down and do a drive-by and make them feel worse and like, oh, you know, It's to bring them to grace. It's to bring them to the joy of God's mercy and salvation and and eternal hope. Like if you don't get there, you failed a person. You haven't understood, you haven't explained, you haven't revered the word right if you don't get people to grace and mercy. But anyway, uh, so go eat what's sweet. Give portions, like be generous. Uh, Do not grieve. The joy of the Lord is our strength. The Levites quieted all the people. They were so, I think a lot of times, we're more impacted by the awareness of our sin and shame and guilt than we are God's mercy, love, and grace. So we got to, like, help people pivot there, too, and, and, like, yes, God has really forgiven you. Yes, God loves you. Yes, God has a plan for your life. Yes, God's spirit is powerful, you know, to set you free from these things that you feel guilt and shame about. Like, there's more to the gospel than, like, hey, don't just take them to the first step. Take them all the way to the finish line on that. Uh, so the Levites had to quiet everybody. Be still, don't grieve. And then all the people, they began to eat. And then they began to drink. And then they began to share and be generous. And then they had this great celebration because they understood the words that were explained to them. You know, the greatest word that people need to understand is the living God himself, Jesus Christ, the word that became flesh. When Jesus became flesh as the word of God embodied amongst us, he came full of grace and full of truth. We do the truth part, can we bring people to the grace part? When people understand, they worship. When they understand grace and truth, they worship. When they just understand the truth, a lot of times they check out, you know, there's no hope, there's despair. But when they understand grace and truth, a revival, a renewal is unlocked. The word of God, Jesus Christ, the written word, brings people to that place of revitalization and renewal. So again, it's not just reading. It's translating. God was translated to us by Jesus, by his incarnational example. But we got to take the word that talks about Jesus and we have to bring it, its meaning out, explain it, help people understand. 
It can't just be the sage on the stage doing it. It's a team effort. We need people lined up on the left, people lined up on the right. We need parents. We need everybody in explaining and doing all this. All the ministers, all the leaders, all the heads of households. That's what we see here. Now, revival, does it just happen one time? Is it a one-and-done-er, one-off event? No. Ezra 8.18. Ezra read out of the book of the law of God one day a week on Sunday for 30 minutes because people couldn't tolerate more than that. No. He read out of the book of the law of God every day from the first day to the last. It was a rhythm. A new rhythm was established. And the Israelites celebrated the festival for seven days, and on the eighth day there was a solemn assembly according to the ordinance. There's a lot more going on here than I'm explaining and describing. It's like there's layers. But anyhow, there was great joy, tremendous joy that was unleashed in this city. And the city became the people of God. Now, if this all sounds oddly familiar to you, let me remind you that, you know, when did the people, the city of God become the people of God in Nehemiah 8? When did, in the book of Acts, There was a day of Pentecost when the church was launched and born. 3,000 people on Pentecost got baptized. Did those baptized people become the church the moment they came up out of the water? Well, they were added to the church that day. But that just represented potential. When did their potential get actualized? Uh, When might your life actually be rebuilt and revitalized? When might your home, your church, your city be reborn or revitalized. It's when the word becomes active. It's when the word is planted by you in your life. In Acts 2.42, we read these words about the early church. They, like the people in Nehemiah's day, established a new rhythm. They came to truth. They came to grace. But they needed a new rhythm to reinforce what had given them new life so that they could remain uh, vital in their relationship with God. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, to prayer. These sacraments, these rituals became a way for them to reinforce and to continue to realize the potential and to, and to actualize the power of the Spirit in their life. Everyone was filled with awe. Many wonders and signs were being performed through the apostles. Now all the believers were together. They held all things in common. They sold their possessions and property. They gave proceeds to anyone as they had need. Every day they devoted themselves, once a week, no, every day they did this. They devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple. They broke bread in their house to house. They ate with their food with joyful and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying all the favor of the people. And every day the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. When you have a daily rhythm, you have daily fruit. When you have a, a, a daily rhythm, God shows up every day. When you have a weekly rhythm, God might show up once a week. You know, you might feel or sense his work once a week, you know, and oh, here's what happened this week. But daily, a daily rhythm. Acts 2 is Nehemiah chapter 7 and 8, condensed. But it's a reminder to us that God transforms us and sanctifies us through this rhythm of consuming his word of consuming the truth of it, the grace of it, and letting it be a transformative dynamic in every relationship, not just with brothers and sisters of Christ, but also with people far from God. God uses it. So let's use it. 
And let's lean into this lesson. Let's not just be a building, let's be a church, right? Let's be a church. Let's pray. Dear Father, we know that you want to transform us. You want to sanctify us. You want to renew us. And we know that you are speaking to us and your words are what's going to do it. Your word, your son, Jesus Christ, incarnate, dwelling among us, speaking to us, interpreting you to us, translating you to us, revealing you to us. It always takes a person to stand in the gap where there is an understanding. Help us to do that with one another, with our families, our children, our neighbors. Let us be the Levites, the the, the priests, the scribes. Let us step into that responsibility, Father, as your people and make your church great for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.